going to continue in a series we've been working on for some time now through John chapter 15. We've been just kind of going uh, verse by verse, line by line, chatting about some things, and uh, we're on verse 13 today. Um, and so let's just open uh, with prayer. Father, we just lay our, our spirit and our soul and our mind and our bodies just before you. Father, we invite you to just do your good work uh, in us this morning. You tell us that perfect love casts out all fear, and so, Father, we just lay down any fear, and we invite your presence into our being. God, for you to rearrange, for you to build, for you to, to touch us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're going to be looking at John chapter 15, verse 13. When I was uh, thinking about the message for this weekend, I was super excited about verse 14 and 15. And so started working on that uh, because this is the, the, the text where Jesus says, you know, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Uh, beautiful text. And so I started working away on that, but God says, oh, what about verse 13? And so uh, he made me go back. And so we're going to work on verse 13, and next week we'll talk about the other one. <clears throat> but this is the verse. Uh, John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay, one's life, lay down one's life for one's friends. And here is Jesus actually looking at his disciples, and he, he calls them friends. And, and we're going to see next week that he actually calls you and I friends. Uh, he doesn't look at us as, as servants. He looks at us as friends or sons and daughters or a family. We're, we're God's family. That's next week, though, but uh, we're going to look at verse 13. Greater love is no one than this. And Jesus here is talking about the reality that he is about to lay down his life. He is about to be crucified for his disciples, for, for you and I. There is less than uh, probably an hour, maybe about that, before he is arrested at this moment. He's coming down to the wire where he'll be arrested and then, uh, then later crucified. And so he says, as he looks out over his disciples, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so Jesus is about to be uh, crucified, hung on a cross. And uh, when, when you think about the life of Jesus and you know, the miracles he did and uh, the signs and wonders he did and the love that he showed people, hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. You look at his whole life, and then he ends up on a cross, uh, being crucified and killed and, and beaten and tortured. And, and so there's a common question that is often asked, and that is, I mean, why did Jesus have to die? That's a really common question that all of us have probably asked at one time, or maybe we're still asking. I mean, why in the world did Jesus have to die? Why didn't, I mean, wouldn't it have been awesome? Because he really only spent about you know, three years in ministry. Wouldn't it have been awesome that if he just had continued on for maybe another 20 or 30? I mean, imagine what he could have done. Uh, but he, he goes to the cross and, and he is crucified. Uh, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, on one hand, that answer can be very simple. Uh, simple enough for a, a child to understand in terms of that, that there's something about the cross that draws us. There's something about the cross that brings us life and, and forgiveness. I mean, I mean, such a simple, yet complex, but a simple verse. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so there's this the simplicity about the cross, that we know it does something, but on the other hand, we know this question is, it is seriously complex. Uh, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, I mean, you can pick up one number of hundreds of books on the subject, and, and you know, there's probably millions of pages written about why Jesus had to die, and there's all kinds of different ideas, and there's friendly debates in Christianity and not-so-friendly debates in Christianity about you know, atonement theories and how, why he died, and it can get very complex. Uh, but we know for sure in this complexity that there's not one answer to this question that there are various reasons why Jesus had to die. And uh, these are often called atonement theories if you study theology. But we can see some of these reasons in the Scripture, uh, some of these various reasons. So in Isaiah 53, we say, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That there is something where our guilt and our shame has, has been dealt with on the cross, that we, we are now free, and, and, and there's healing cross. There's this healing that flows from the cross. Or 1 John 2, 2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is forgiveness of our sins flowing from the cross. Not just our sins, but the text says for the sins of the whole world. That the cross was something that encompassed all of humanity. Or Hebrews 2. Only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And so here's another answer to the question. The Bible says it had something to do with breaking the power of evil spirits and, and the power of, uh, of Satan. Or we can look at Galatians 1, another reason. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. There's, there's something about the cross that rec rescues us in part from, from this broken world, that there is another source of life instead of the broken source of life from this world. Or another reason, in Acts chapter 3, I mean, just talking about how, you know, talking to the, the religious leaders and the people of the day that you killed the author of life, that this is what uh, negative religion does. When religion goes bad, it, it kills good things and, and ended up killing Jesus. And there's a part of the, the wickedness of humanity that takes things that are good and lovely and beautiful like Jesus and, and tortures them. And so there's a lot of reasons why Jesus had to die. And in our text today, Jesus gives us another reason. He says, my command is this, this, is what we looked at last few weeks, love each other as I have loved you. And so we see him washing the disciples' feet, uh, even the, the feet of Judas who was going to betray him. And after that, he says, I want you to love the way I love even Judas. I want you to love each other deeply. But then this meaning even gets more deep when he says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. That this idea of Jesus being crucified, one of the reasons is, is because it manifests the love of God. It reminds us that God is love and how much God loves us. In fact, the very definition of love is actually wrapped up in the cross this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That there's something in the cross 
God being God, and, and as beautiful as he is, that he was willing to come down and to walk in human flesh and, and die that we might be free, that is the extent of his love. And, and as, as Romans 5.8 simply puts it, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the cross is actually a demonstration of God's love. So one of the reasons, why did Jesus have to die? There's lots of reasons, but one of them is because it's a demonstration to you and I that God really loves us. Because we can miss it sometimes. Maybe we, we kind of mess up. Well, maybe God doesn't love me, but the cross shows just the finality of this idea that God really, really loves you even in your darkest hour. Even in your worst moments, this is what it's saying, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't matter how rotten your life has been, there is love flowing from God, and, and the cross says, and it seals it, and reminds us that this is really true. God is a God who pursues us, and um, this is the story of the whole Bible, and of course, the the big reveal, if you will, of God's love is found on the cross, but, but we see right from the very, very beginning, God is a God who is pursuing us with his love. I mean, we go back to the Garden of Eden, and it just talks about uh, Adam and Eve and how uh, they had no shame. They were, they were naked and felt no shame. Because it was a perfect world. There was no worry about judgment. There was wor no worry about being condemned. There was no worry uh, about fear. There was just this perfect love. Uh, you could they were walking around naked because there was no worry about rape or people looking at each other in horrible ways. It was just a beautiful, perfect, clean world where man walked with God and, and there was no shame. And then, of course, we know the story. Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is, in a sense is symbolic for Adam and Eve saying, you know, I'm going to decide what's right and wrong. I don't need you, God. I'm going to decide what is good and what is evil in this world apart from you. And, and man fell into sin and, and brokenness came into, into this world. And it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. All of a sudden, for the first time, they felt shame. They felt afraid. They felt you know, I'm naked, there's something wrong with me, I need to be covered. And, and all of a sudden, this, this hiding, which we all do, enters the world, and the shame and this guilt, it floods in because they've separated themselves from, from God in, in, their, in their minds. But it's interesting to see God's response in this. Do you know the very first words of God, after Adam and Eve decide to kind of do life on their own, is not God showing up and saying, you know, I'm going to beat you up, and you know, how dare you do this? You know, I'm so disappointed in you. The very first words of God is God calling to Adam and Eve, where are you? And this is not, where are you? This is, where are you? As in the love of a father calling to his children, where are you? You've been running away. This begins the story of pursuit, of God pursuing his people, God pursuing his people to bring them into a family relationship where he can look at us and say, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. In fact, the very next episode we know in, in Genesis is the, the scene where uh, Cain kills Abel. And, uh, and, and it's murder. I mean, it's, a, it's an awful scenario. But even in this, God doesn't reject Cain. 
Even, even in your darkest moments, God won't reject you. He didn't reject Cain because it's interesting. You read the story that God actually uh, covered Cain with a level of protection from people trying to, to kill him. And, and God is pursuing Cain even in that. And you run through it, the whole Old Testament is a story of God pursuing his people with a heart of love, inviting them in to an intimate relationship. He sends prophets to turn people's hearts towards God. And in fact, the whole story of the Old Testament can really be summed up partly in the book of Hosea. I don't know if you've read Hosea, but uh, Hosea is an interesting story. Hosea was a prophet in a, in a very dark time in Israel. And uh, he was married to a woman named Gomer, and, and they had three different kids. Uh, but their marriage it hit hard times because Gomer kind of went back, it seems, to her old way of life, which was sleeping around and making money through prostitution. And, and, uh, and so their marriage falls apart, and, and they're split up. And, and God shows up to Hosea and tells Hosea, he says, God says, Hosea, I want you to go back to Gomer. I know she's making money, sleeping around, but I want you to go back to Gomer. In fact, I want you to go back to Gomer, and I want to pay off all the debt she owes to her various lovers, and I want you to bring her back into your home. And then God says, this is a picture. This is a picture of my heart towards my people. I love my people, but they turn their back on me, and they, they go, go try to find life in other places. They try, try to find love in other places, and I pursue them, and I pursue them with my arms of love, and, and I'm bringing them back into my fold. This is my desire. This is God's desire. He is pursuing you, even in the darkest moments. Again, this whole story is how God pursues you, even in your worst, even in your failings, even in, in your screw-ups. And, and some of the language flowing from God's heart is really beautiful. I mean, Hosea 11, this is God speaking. He says, I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck, and I myself stooped to feed him. Or uh, verse 8, oh, how can I give uh, you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. And this is God's heart when there are times when we kind of steer away and we, we kind of run from God a little bit. And, and this is God's heart. He's like, how can I give you up? I can't give you up. And, and he pursues and he pursues and he pursues. And, and he's hoping that, that we would answer. And, and so the Lord says, this is, this is what happens when you answer. Then I will heal your faithfulness. And my love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven. Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars in Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people will again live under my shade. They will flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. Oh, Israel, stay away from idols. I am the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I am like a tree that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. And every good and perfect gift comes from God, yet we, we don't always recognize that. And God is reaching out and he's calling us back into, into his presence. This is, this is God's heart for his people. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see him pursuing 
with a heart of love. And, and yet, you know, still people would turn away and not, not see it. And, and then comes, if you will, the ultimate reveal. You know, the ultimate reveal of God's, of God's love shows up as Jesus comes on the scene. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The Word, which John, John defines as God, uh, or the, the, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son. The Word who is, in, uh, who is God becomes flesh. And so we have Jesus, the very Son of God who existed for all eternity, pours Himself into human flesh and He walks this planet. And this uh, revelation of Jesus walking on this planet and ultimately the cross is this great reveal of God's love for us. So we, we missed it in the past. So God says, I don't want you to miss it now. And so we see Jesus shows up. And it's interesting what John actually says, just a couple of verses later, he says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. Now it's interesting, you look at this, say, what do you mean no one has seen God? What do you mean no one has really known him. I mean, what, what about all the Old Testament? You mean, no one really saw God in the Old Testament? Because we do read verses like this in Exodus 33. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to his friend. I mean, I mean what do you mean no one knows God? What do you mean that, that Jesus has made him known? You mean God wasn't known in the Old Testament? Well, in some sense, yes, but there's also a sense, no. The, the, the fullest revelation of who God is, the fullest revelation of His character and who God really is was not really revealed in its fullness until Jesus. It is when we see Jesus that all of a sudden we see God because He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It is in Jesus that we really understand the character of, of God. And this is really, really important because God looks like Jesus. If your view of God doesn't look like Jesus, there's something wrong with your view of God because Jesus is the clearest picture of who God actually is. I mean, look at some of the things that Jesus said in John 5. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. And then he says, whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So when you're reading the Gospels, everything that Jesus does is exactly what the Father is wanting. That's God. Everything that Jesus says is exactly what the Father is saying. That it's God saying that. And so when you see Jesus meeting the woman at the well, this woman whom the disciples wouldn't hang out with, and the disciples are like, Jesus, why are you hanging out? She's a Samaritan woman. Jesus was showing love to this woman that's, that's who God is. That's what God was saying. I mean, you see, Jesus, uh, when the woman who was caught in adultery and the religious leaders wanted to stone her, because that's what, you know, ne negative religion does. It kills. It killed Jesus. I mean, they were wanting to kill her, and Jesus, you know, had a little conversation, and they leave, and, and Jesus looks at this woman and says, does anyone condemn you? And she says, no, Jesus. And Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And that order is really important because it begins with the love that there is no condemnation and this changes our heart that we live, leave the life of sin. I mean, it's this kindness that leads us to repentance. But when Jesus says that, when she, Jesus was looking at that woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, that's the Father speaking. 
Because everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did was exactly a revelation of God. That's, that's revealing God's heart. And we see Jesus going over to, to the, you know, the infamous Zacchaeus, the tax collector. One of the most hated people probably in the land. And Jesus says, hey, I'm coming over to dinner at your house. Because that's what God does. He loves to show up in messy people's lives like yours and mine, and, and he shows up and he just wants to commune with us and, 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 and make us friends and bring us into his family. I mean, we see Jesus when he, he is being arrested, and uh, you know, Peter takes out that sword and he cuts off the, the ear of the servant of one of the guys arresting Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, Peter! <laughs> no, Jesus picks up this ear of his enemy and, and heals it. Because that's who God is. Because that's what Jesus taught, love your enemies. That's, that's God's heart, is to, to even love his enemies. I mean, you remember when, again, this is why we see the clearest revelation in Jesus, it, not in the Old Testament, we see the clearest revelation in Jesus, because you remember when Jesus and his disciples went to that Samaritan town, and they kind of rejected him, and, and Peter and John were like, let's go Old Testament. Jesus, can we call fire down and consume this town? It says Jesus rebuked them. Now, maybe that was okay in the Old Testament, I don't know, but, but Jesus rebuked him, but, but Jesus is the one we see clearest the character of God. It is in Jesus we really find out God's heart, and God's heart is not to send fire down from heaven, it is to always bring life, not death. And then we finally see Jesus hanging on a cross. The very people who yelled, crucify him, were standing there mocking Jesus, and what does Jesus say? Now, you remember, every word that Jesus said, Jesus said, is exactly what the Father wanted me to say. And on the cross, when he's hanging there, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the heart of God being revealed in Jesus, that the heart of God is wanting to just the forgiveness to flow on even these enemies. And so Jesus brings the ultimate reveal of God's love. And of course, that is finally seen in the cross. That greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Our God demonstrates his own love for in, uh, us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross reveals just how much God really loves us. I mean, he could have given us a Hallmark card and said, you know, I love you. But we would doubt that. It, 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 this, is, this is God's, in, you know, we, we have this in our love songs and in poetry when we say, you know, I love you so much I would die for you. But this is not just a hallmark saying. This, this is actually Jesus saying and God saying, I actually have done it. It's a seal. This is a, this is a real deal that, that I actually love you that much, that I've pursued you, pursued you, and pursued you, and pursued you, and the great reveals I've pursued you so much that I'm willing to actually die for you. It is really important that, that, that our idea of God lines up with the character of of Jesus, because this is something that God has actually been trying to correct right from the very beginning. When God calls to Adam and Eve and says, says, where are you? Says God reaching out with loving arms, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. The something in Adam's mind all of a sudden was afraid of God. Something in Adam's mind was all of a sudden Oh boy, you know, God's not safe. I can't be naked in front of God. I can't be exposed in front of God. I gotta hide. So he actually hides from God. Somehow his image of God 
from being beautiful and loving and, and, and safe went to, I got to be afraid and I got to hide and I got I to run. And the theologian Richard Baxter, talking about this text, he says that there are times when we take a paintbrush and we dip it in our own guilt and shame and we take it and we paint an image of God out of that guilt and shame. Or God is just mean and angry because I, you know, I feel guilty and so there must be someone who's going to punish me. And, and we paint a picture of God out of our own guilt and shame. And throughout the Old Testament, you see God constantly trying to correct people's image of him. I mean, here's an image of God in Deuteronomy that some of the people had. You complained in your tents and said, the Lord must hate us. That is why he has brought us here from Egypt to hand us over to the Amorites to be slaughtered. I mean, God is a mean God. He must hate us. And they're looking at their circumstances and dipping the paintbrush in their circumstances and say, well, this must be, must be what God is like because my circumstances are like that. Now, God says this, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. So God's heart was pursuit. God's heart was love and to bless and to bring life. And yet the people have this corrupt image in their mind that somehow God hates me and I got to hide from him. And we are constantly doing the same thing. That we often, again, will dip the paintbrush in our own guilt and shame and make God out to be somehow, you know, a God that's like that or uh, maybe even more often, we dip the paintbrush in our circumstances, like the Israelites. And we paint a picture of God. Well, my circumstances are this. My life sucks because my circumstance sucks, so God must be a horrible God. Where do we get an accurate picture of who God is? We don't get it from dipping in our own guilt and shame. We don't get it from dipping in our circumstances. We get it through Jesus. That Jesus is the one who... We have seen God. Jesus is the one who has fully revealed the heart and character of God. And so we've got to make sure that, that our thinking about who God is isn't based on our circumstances or isn't based on our own disappointments and failures, that it is actually based on the clearest picture we have of God, and that is what is revealed in Jesus. I mean, even in Jesus' day when he actually showed up, I mean, I mean some of them actually said this. Some of them said... By Beelzebub, who's like the prince of demons. He, Jesus is driving out demons. Yeah, he was possessed. Uh, but his heart was actually so soft towards them. In Luke 19, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he, he actually, he weeps over the city. And he says, how often I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You see, God does not force us. God is a God of love. He will not force us to be in relationship with Him. I mean, imagine if, you know, some guy was, you know, looking for a spouse. I mean, maybe they did this many years ago, but, you know, we'd just go grab some woman, say, you're going to be my wife, and she's like, no, I don't like you, you know, I don't like you at all, but, you know, you're going to be my, I'm going to force you to love me, and you're going to, I'm going to force you to be my, to be my spouse. I mean, that's not love at all. That's abuse. And some people think God is that way. God's not that way. God is like, I would just love to, to gather you into my family, to, to have you a part of, to, to celebrate the triune God. But you were not willing. I mean, the fact is God is pursuing you. He is pursuing you. He is pursuing you, wanting to invite you into his very family. And God is saying, would you be willing? Would you be willing to respond to my gesture of love? And if you doubt my love, just look at Jesus. If you doubt my love, just look at the cross because I have sealed this. I love you enough to actually die for you. 
Is there any view of God that you have in your mind that doesn't line up with the clearest picture we have of God, and that is Jesus? Is there any view of God that you have in your life that doesn't line up with Jesus? No one has seen God until we've seen Jesus. No, God has not been fully revealed until Jesus comes. So, Father, we just ask right now, just each of us in our hearts. Father, is there any lie I am believing about you? Father, is there any lie that I am believing about you? I just take a moment. God laid a lie in your heart just to, just to lay that at the feet of Jesus to give it up. And Father, we just ask what truth do you want to give us in replace of that lie? What truth about your being, your character, do you want to give us in replace of that lie? Father, we just take a moment to receive your love. God, if there is any shame in our hearts right now, any guilt, any you know, struggle over sin, that we would just, just acknowledge you've dealt with that. You said it's finished. There's no condemnation. And so we just lay that sin at your feet, all our guilt and shame. And we just rest in your love. See, that perfect love casts out all fear. So we receive, we receive you into our lives. Thank you that your light is greater than any darkness. Thank you, God, that your love is greater than any hate. God, we just surrender once again to you. And God, would you saturate our being with your love? And may we respond as you say that as you have loved us, God, we want to go from here to love others in the same way. To bless those who even persecute us. To God, to love our spouses with a sacrificial love. That we would be willing to lay down our lives for others. We'd be willing to lay down our pride. God, we'd be willing to lay down our desire to be right and to prove ourselves to others that we just lay that down and live in love. In Jesus' name.